0: There was a time in our nation's history where instruction and education and the educational enterprise in schools and other places were seen in the light of God's providence and in service to a life lived unto God. I was struck by this in reading the charter of Harvard University from 1650. It was Harvard College at that time in 1650, around the same time that the hymn We sang earlier was written. And there are a number of things that are striking about it. Number one, it's clear that those men who founded that institution understood that what they were doing was something that was under the providence of God. It begins this way, whereas through the good hand of God, many persons are moved, etc. And then the other thing that's clear is not only did they understand that God was sovereign over all the events that were taking place, but that the goal of education. The goal of instruction was ultimately a life lived to God. They say that this is for the education of the English and Indian youth of this country in knowledge and in godliness. And they go on to even say that all the subjects that will be studied here are are for growth in godliness, the encouragement of arts and sciences and all good literature, they said, tends to the honor of God and the advantage of the Christian religion. Now, of course, all this is lost in most of our educational institutions today. There's no sense of the sovereignty of God over all that we study, and there's very little sense that all this stuff is to point us to the glory of God. But nonetheless, those twin emphases that instruction is under the sovereignty of God, and it comes by the sovereign hand of God, and that the kind of instruction we're seeking has the aim of godliness, of a life lived unto God. That's very much at the heart of this section of Psalm 119. This section, of course, like all the other sections, is an acrostic. It begins with the same, each line begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But as I say, I think instruction is at the heart of it. It's an instruction for life, and it's an instruction by God's hand, under the sovereignty of God, well, I want to divide this into three sections. Three things that we can consider when we look at this section. The first thing I'd like for us to consider is the scope of the instruction. The second aspect would be the content of the instruction, and then thirdly, the obstacles to this instruction. The scope of the instruction, the content of the instruction, and then the obstacles to this instruction. Well, let's first start with the scope. What is it that the psalmist has in mind here in terms of the instruction that he wants to receive from God? Well, there are two key words here, and they really divide up this section into two parts. The first is this, that the psalmist understands that the scope of the instruction has to encompass, has to take over his whole heart. Look at verse 34, first of all, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. And then verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. That's important to see that the scope of this instruction, first of all, deals with the matter of the heart. You know that in the Bible, of course, the heart is the seat of the intellect and the seat of emotion and really the seat of the will. It's, it's that inward, invisible part of man that is so key and critical. We might say it's the inner part of us. And we know from the scriptures that what the Bible tells us regarding our hearts is that our hearts actually reveal our own wickedness. They reveal the effects of the fall in part. You remember that after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it's only just three short chapters later that the Bible says this, God looked down from heaven and he saw that all the intents of man's heart were always evil all the time. And we've actually seen that played out by Genesis 6 because we've seen the hearts of Adam and Eve transformed towards one another and towards God. And we've seen the heart of Cain turned against his brother and against the Lord. We've seen the hearts of so many who follow after Cain turned against the Lord. And so it's no surprise that in Genesis 6, we receive that diagnosis that all the intents of man's heart were always evil all the time. We know, and we've seen this before in Psalm 119, it's picked up this heart language in previous sections, that the fundamental command given to Israel is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And and it's the fundamental problem with Israel when we read the rest of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 29, as Moses is surveying the nature of the people as they're about to enter the land. What he says is, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Uh, we know from the New Testament how critical this is. Jesus says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, Theft, false witness, slander. You know, of course, that very famous verse in Jeremiah 17, "The heart is deceitful and desperately sick, who can understand it?" You know, one of the challenges, of course, when it comes to our hearts is that while the fruit born of this wickedness, the fruit born of this sin, can be seen, can be observed, oftentimes the nature of the heart cannot be observed directly. And it's worth thinking today about the state, even of your own heart. What are your ambitions? What is it that you seek after? What is it that you value most? What is it that you reflect upon when you have nothing else to think about? You know, this is the issue, of course. And so the psalmist understands that the instruction that he needs, the instruction that matters is instruction of the heart. He needs his whole heart transformed to follow the Lord. Now, if we were to ask the question, how does the Bible say this takes place? We would, of course, have to say that the Bible makes it clear that unless we're given a new heart by God, this transformation can't take place. It's not something we can affect on our own. It's not something another teacher effect on us. It's something that he's asking of the Lord here. You know that this is what Jesus is describing when he says, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But in any case, the, the scope, first of all, of this psalm is that he wants God to instruct him, and he wants God to instruct him not just in a superficial way. He doesn't just want to learn more information. No, he wants... God to instruct him in such a way that it goes into his heart, that it transforms him completely. And that actually leads to the second major image he gives regarding the scope of this instruction. The scope of the instruction, we could say, is the heart. But the other way the psalmist puts it in the second half of this section, verses 37 through 40, is he says it affects all of life. So look at For instance, um, in verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. And then look at how the psalm ends or the section ends in verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. Now, in a sense, this is just another way of talking about the fact that he wants total transformation from the inside out, from the heart outward. He knows that, As the heart is transformed, what that will actually mean is that every area of his life is transformed. Nonetheless, that is how it breaks down. He talks about being instructed in the heart, and then he talks about being given life by the Lord. They're they're overlapping principles, of course, but nonetheless, he does distinguish between them. We know they're overlapping because the synonym in the New Testament for a renewed heart is new life. And oftentimes those things are used in overlapping ways. Let's turn our attention, though, to this question of life and how important it is. Just as the heart is critically important, so is the life of us. Uh, In fact, isn't this the image that the Bible often gives of salvation in Jesus Christ? Whoever has the Son, uh, John tells us, has life. And it's not incidental that when you get to the end of the Bible and you get this description of the new heavens and the new earth, it's full of life. There's a a tree of life. There's water of life. There's the book of life in Revelation chapter 21. We know that even the gospels are organized in this way. As John structures his gospel, what he says about the Lord Jesus Christ and the revelation given of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he... Written these things so that you might believe, and then in believing, you may have life in his name. So, this is the scope of the instruction that the psalmist wants to give to us. And this has significant implications with respect to even our ministry. Remember how Paul describes his own ministry. He says, We're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And then, remember, He describes himself in 2 Corinthians 2 as a minister, not of the letter which kills, but of the spirit which gives life. So this is the scope of the instruction to have to live a godly life, to live a life unto God. It begins in the heart. It starts on the inside and it works its way out. It's a new life entirely. This is what real instruction from God looks like. You're your thinking needs to be changed. Your appetites need to be altered. What you love in your heart needs to be refocused. This is what it means to be instructed by God. You want to go to school and have God instruct you. You want God as your teacher, God as your mentor, God as the one who is, who is showing you the way. Well, what he does is nothing less than get down to your heart and it transforms your entire life. That's what it is to be instructed by God. Now, what's the content? If that's the scope, nothing less than the whole person, what's the content of this instruction? Well, there are a number of words that are used to describe the content in verses 33 through 36. He says, First of all, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes in verse 33. In verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law. Uh, verse 35, he talks about it this way, lead me in the path of your commandments. And then in verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies. When we could summarize it and say this, that the content of God's instruction, the goal of which is heart transformation and life transformation, the content of that instruction from God is his word, is his law. There are a number of, again, words used. I delineated them for you, but there's a sense in which there are overlapping definitions here, and we could say it's, it's the Word of God. Uh, the Word of God, which we know is breathed out by God, so work of God, the Holy Spirit, is the content of the instruction that God gives us. And what better content could there be? Because it's God's Word, we know that it is reliable in contrast to any other teaching you might be able to receive. It's without error in contrast to any human instruction. It's holy. It's for your good. It's consistent. In other words, it's sufficient for everything that you need for life and godliness. It's true that the Bible doesn't teach us everything about everything, but it does give us the foundation we need for life It gives us the instruction we need for our hearts. It gives us all that we need for life and godliness. And I wonder if you consider this to be the great need, the great need in terms of content in your life. What does it mean to be instructed by God? Well, nothing less than the renovation of your whole self. But what's the content of that? Well, nothing less than the word of God in its entirety. There are all kinds of places you can look for wisdom, all kinds of people you can turn to, experiences you might seek out. You might even be deceived enough. We see this happen many times in scripture, deceived enough to think that sin is going to somehow bring you wisdom and bring you blessing. It's a great lie. It's really the original lie we see in Genesis 3. No, but it's the word of God that's able to instruct us. Remember, The Apostle Paul says the word of God, the sacred writings are able to make you wise unto salvation. And then he says, it's all breathed out by God and profitable that you, the man of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, if you think that this is your great need, if this is really what you need to be filled with, you need to come to a greater knowledge of the word of God by the spirit of God than the only reasonable application of this is for you to study God's word and pray to him to teach you by his spirit and that's i think an important implication of this what is the psalmist doing in this first section he's crying out to God that God would instruct him and that God would instruct him on the basis of the word of God is that a is that a prayer that you regularly make is that something you regularly ask God for Uh, The scriptures tell us that the heavenly our heavenly father will give the spirit to those who ask him so we need to be asking and we need to be studying the word of god well that's the content and we know the scope the goal as it were what are the obstacles to this kind of instruction you know many times on syllabi There will, at least uh, in institutions where I've been, there will be something that will say something like this uh, the successful student will, and then it will have a a series of objectives for the course on there. There's a sense in which we could look at this in terms of obstacles, which is how I've introduced it, but we could also look at it in terms of outcomes what it is that God is doing through His Word, by His Spirit, in the heart of one who is instructed by Him. What are the obstacles? Well, Look at verse 36. Verse 36 is a transitional verse. It really comes at the end of the first section and at the beginning of the second section. But nonetheless, there's an obstacle introduced there. Incline my heart to your testimonies, he says, picking up on that theme of the first section. But he says that the obstacle to that, uh, the opposite of that, would be not to selfish gain. This is always going to get in the way of any instruction by God. Selfish gain. What does Jesus tell us? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then what does Jesus say? By way of application, you cannot serve God and money. If you want to be instructed by God, if you really want him to transform your heart and fill it with the word of God so that your whole life might be changed, well, one of the things that will get in the way of that is any selfishness, any any desire for the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil. You know, that's not the only obstacle. Look at verse 37. There's another obstacle that he gives here when he says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. This is a term that could refer to wicked things, uh, wicked ideas, uh, evil, foul ideas, but it also more often just refers to things that are that are worthless that are that are vain that are emptiness, you see that's another obstacle as well you've got to be on guard against selfishness you've got to be on guard against the love of money, but you also have to be on guard against things that uh while in and of themselves may not be wrong, are ultimately ephemeral, they are passing, they are here today, gone tomorrow. Think about how much time in the last month that you've wasted on trivialities on things that you were invested in for a moment and then forgot about as soon as you invested yourself in them. Think about how many things you read that you forgot almost immediately afterwards. This is part of what it means to look at worthless things. What's the alternative? Well, give me life in your ways. Another obstacle comes in verse 38. This is a an unusual verse that has puzzled the commentators over the centuries he says confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared now what's he saying here because he he acknowledges that he is god's servant and he loves the lord but nonetheless he asks that his promise would be confirmed here's what one what charles spurgeon has said about this and i think this captures it. It captures the peculiarity of this verse, but also, I think, the meaning of it. He says, this seems to be a prayer against the influence of doubt and skepticism, a prayer that doubts might not suffer to spring up in his mind, and that objections and difficulties and skepticism might find no place there. This is what he's asking. He's saying he recognizes his own frame and recognizes his own doubts and difficulties and says, what I want you to do, Lord, is confirm your promise to me that you may be feared. How does God do that? How does God confirm his promise? How does he answer this prayer? Well, he certainly answers it by confirming it directly by his Holy Spirit, but he also confirms it by showing us the fulfillment of his promises in our lives. And You you need to look back and ask yourself the question, how has God fulfilled his promises to you? That's meant to cause us to fear God and cause us to even point others to fear him. Next uh, obstacle that he mentions is in verse 39. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Now, this could be the reproach of others who are turning against him. And he says, Lord, make it clear that this reproach is unfounded, but it could very well be. And I think based on the last line in verse 39, it may well be the reproach that he's uh, receiving from the Lord himself or that he's in danger of receiving from the Lord himself. We know from the scriptures that there are reproaches from other people, that the people of God Receive. Remember, even the prophet Jeremiah says, The word of the Lord has become a reproach for me and a derision all day long. Uh, But I think it's probably right to understand it this way that what the psalmist is praying for is that the Lord would keep him from any kind of reproach from the Lord because of his sinfulness. And that's why he ends by saying, Your rules are good. Everything you've commanded is just and right and good. And therefore, what I don't want is Your reproach. Well, if these are the obstacles for instruction, and we've seen the content of the instruction and the scope of the instruction, what's the overarching idea? This is something it's easier to note in the Hebrew, but I think it's clear enough from the English. With the exception of verse 40, all of these verses begin with an imperative addressed to God. God, please do this, a request of God. God, we ask you to do this. And even verse 40 ends in that same way. Give me life. Now, there's a, a literary reason for this. It's the letter, the letter hey is what begins each line. But there's a, there's a more foundational theological rationale. And I think it's this, that when you talk about the instruction of God, you need to bear in mind, as the psalmist does, his absolute sovereignty over all things. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. He does among the hosts of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth as he pleases. Or or perhaps we could think of it in the way Jesus himself instructed his disciples. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says in John 15. Paul puts it this way, what do you have that you did not receive? And this is the question that pervades this section of the psalm. Do you, do you know that apart from the work of God, the Holy Spirit, you can do nothing and learn nothing, and, and your ministry from a spiritual perspective is is dead? Do, do you know that? The psalmist knows that. That's why every line is a request that God would instruct him, that God would teach him, that God would take away reproach. If you don't know this, if you, if you think somehow that, you're the one who's the key here, that you're the one who deserves the credit for even what you learn and what you know. Then you failed to understand even the most basic principle of this section of the Psalter. Teach me, give me, lead me, incline my heart, turn my eyes, confirm your word, turn away, give me life. This is what the psalmist requests. Do you understand this? Second overarching theme that comes under the umbrella of God's sovereignty is Do you know that the battle ultimately, when it comes to instruction by God, is for the heart? The key to a transformed life is a transformed heart. That's where all the attention is given here. He wants his heart transformed so his life is changed. Do you know that's where the battle is, even now in your own heart? Do you know that? What you need in terms of content is not primarily a new technique or new teaching, new instruction. No, we need to be like the prophet, seek out the old paths. You know that what you need is ultimately the word of God. And that's sufficient for both your own life and your own ministry and your own teaching and those who will be learning under you and instructed by you, the word of God. Now, all of that is in this section. He makes it clear that the word of God is enough. He makes it clear that the battle is for the heart, and that flows out into the life. And he makes it clear that all of this is under the sovereign hand of God. And so, ultimately, when we talk about ministry and instruction, of both the instruction we receive and the instruction we give, we have to realize it's a work of the triune God—Father, Son, and Holy Spirit—as we as we point people to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who perfectly kept the law, the one who Perfectly instructed all men. Uh, As we point them to him, uh, the one who died and was raised to new life is the one who's the giver of the Holy Spirit to his people. As we point ourselves to him, we have to live in the strength that he's given. Apart from me, Jesus says, You can do nothing. And it's the Spirit who gives life. And without him, we are dead. Oh, I wonder if. Even today, you think of your instruction here in those terms. You realize that this is actually a wonderful section of Psalm 119 for seminarians. Because what it says is that it's God who's doing the work. It's God whom you need to cry out to. It's God who's going to teach you. The heart needs to be transformed. But, but what's, the, what's the goal at the end? Well, behold, I long for your precepts. And in your righteousness, give me life. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for this time. Thank you for your word and for its instruction to us. Father, transform our hearts from the inside that we might live transformed lives. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.